Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our mostly monthly, at this point in time, <laughs> everything is weird. Uh, it is our monthly interview series where I get to sit down physically or virtually, in this case, with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the gaming industry. Uh, today, my guest, I'm, I'm very pleased to be joined by Marcus Leto. He is the founder, co-founder of V1 Interactive. They're uh, hard at work on a new game, new first-person shooter, Disintegration. We'll talk about that. But also a longtime Bungie veteran, the co-creator of The Master Chief himself. Marcus, welcome. Thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate being here. So, uh, obviously, we are not sitting at our nice barcade setup as we normally would be. So, I, I definitely just want to start by asking you, how are you and your team adapting to, uh, to this new work-from-home situation, particularly as you guys are, are getting close? You're trying to finish yeah. a game here. Yeah, we are now six weeks in. We've kind of lost track of time and, and the days that have passed by, but uh, uh, it's been a challenge for us, for sure. Uh, moving everybody from the studio um, on, on, into our, our virtual setup uh, where we're all working together uh, to wrap up this game has been super, super hard, um, especially as uh, we close out and doing the more difficult things like uh, perf testing and other um, issues, you know, on consoles and things that we really rely on the hardware at the office yeah. uh, and uh, our connection together as a team. But... That said, I mean, we're doing our best. Uh, we're all in the same boat together, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're getting through it one Has more it, step at a time. Now, we've seen a lot of games get delayed. Uh, I, have you guys been kind of set back at all, or have you been able to, to stick to your existing timeline? Just a little bit. Um, fortunately, we were already coming into the uh, landing strip with the, with the final stages of the game, so... Yeah. We were able to stay mostly on track, which is good. Um, it's just the, the you know those last little details to finishing up a game are oftentimes some of the most difficult problems to solve. So that um, that makes things a little bit more challenging for us, for sure. So uh, we're going to talk plenty more about this integration. Right now, I want to walk you back in time. Let's uh, let's let's figure <laughs> out how you got to where you are. We'll go. We'll take a walk down memory lane here. Oh, now boy. you have an okay. art background. You have a. I'm curious. So, you know, you you are an art director at Bungie. You've always been uh, an art guy before crossing over with with Reach, Halo Reach, and beyond into into mm -hmm. design proper and leading projects, but. Uh, did you did you always have a penchant for art as a kid? Was it something you were always good at and pursued, or something that that kind of uh, you just worked hard at until you got good at it? Mm. I, you know, I never really considered myself much of a great artist by any means, but uh, the things that I loved doing as a kid, uh, I loved taking stuff apart all the time. I, the first thing I would do is just try to problem solve, yeah. and I think. Like taking things apart and then putting them back together um, all the time. I do that all the time. Um, was part of the process of figuring out how things work and figuring out how you could uh, kind of make something different from it. Um, that's when like Legos came into being. And I was like, oh my God, I love Legos. And I could create anything I wanted as a kid. And it was like, it was really, um, it really fed into that creative, you know, construct something that's not only just cool to look at, but also does something really neat. Um, so I was always interested more in the functional side of things and, uh, you know, how, how it, uh, how it worked and what uh, purpose it served mostly. Um, 
But, um, you know, I got, uh, I got interested in art, uh, in just focusing on that. The more I went through my school, uh, process and into, uh, into, you know, high school where I found I had more of a penchant for doing that kind of thing and, um, really enjoyed it. It's something I put my, uh, a lot of passion into and it just wasn't just, you know, painting or anything like that. Um, it was in, all facets of it uh, was in uh, the drama club and I was in uh, band and choir and, um, and I just loved the, I loved all of that, you know, that creative energy that comes from doing something, whether it be performance or whether it be, um, you know, uh, creating some story for a stage performance or whether it be, you know, creating some beautiful image um, or, um, or work of art in some way. So, your so that's parents- kind of the foundation of it. <laughs> Your parents probably thought you were going to be an engineer. You're sitting there taking stuff apart, <laughs> putting stuff back together. Thought, um, We've got an so, engineer on our hands here. So I, I there there was one point, and this this is a uh, I was my dad was taking me home. Um, I don't know where we were, but we were coming home at, late at night, and um, and someone had thrown away you know one of those giant console stereos that uh, they used oh, to make yeah. where they're huge and they yeah. probably weigh two hundred pounds. Someone had it sitting out on the curb to be thrown away. And I said, Oh my God, Dad, I really could could we take that? And we but he's like, You're crazy. Let's let's uh, let's go home. So we did. But uh, I kept talking to him about it uh, throughout dinner and then later that night we got in the car at like eleven thirty PM, drove out there and uh, and picked that thing up and put it in our hatchback car. I don't know how we even fit it in there. And uh, I dragged that thing down into our basement. And over the course of the next three weeks, I had every, it was like made out of tube resistors and all that kind of stuff. I had the entire thing pulled apart. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, and, and all organized by tube size and everything out on the basement floor. <laughs> and uh, just to discover, you know, like what all the little pieces and parts and the resistors and everything, all the little uh, things that function within it. And then I started to put it all back together. And that was kind of like, this weird thing that I like to do as a kid, uh, just to learn about how things work. Um, and you know, uh, what, what, what goes behind it. And I ended up taking, you know, some of those parts and turning those speakers into, uh, you know, like, uh, the speakers that I put into my Chevy Chevette hatchback when I first, when I got my first car, that, uh, that's kind of what they turned into being eventually. But, um, I think, I don't know, maybe my parents thought I was crazy at that time, but, um, uh, well, they sound super supportive, though. Like the fact that your dad was willing to get back and and basically go pick up a giant pile of trash for you. Yes, it's exactly. <laughs> so he was uh, he was very supportive. They've always been super supportive, and I and that's one of the things I feel really blessed with over the years is that they they didn't uh, look at you know the. Uh, my passion for uh, uh, art, visual design, or anything like that, even as I went from high school and into college, f- focusing on graphic design as a major, um, that um, they did support it. Uh, there were times, of course, yeah, when uh, I remember one of my uh, my college professors pulling me aside. He goes, yeah, you know, uh, last week I had a visit from your dad. Um, like what? He came out to our college, to my college, and like talked to you about this. And he goes, "Yeah, he he just wanted to make sure that that you had any p- potential career path forward, moving forward with with creative design or anything like that, um, just to make sure." Because on his side of things, 
he is, uh, my dad's a preacher. He was, he, um, he was a Methodist minister for, uh, for, for many, many decades. And he just wanted to make sure that, um, um, that pursuing art actually is something of a via that could produce a viable career. Um, cause there was a lot of concern about that at, 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 um, for them at that time, even though they fully supported me with it, uh, they wanted to make sure, um, that somehow, uh, coming out of college, I wasn't going to be living in a, in a cardboard box for the rest of my life. Well, what a compassionate thing though, because your dad, it, it, he didn't try to shame you with it. Right. And tell you, no. Hey, is this, is, there might not be a thing here that he, he just quietly went and yep. spoke to it an expert that has been, that has been educating you. So yeah. I don't know. I find, I find that to be a very sweet story. Well, yeah, it, uh, it turned out, uh, um, I mean, we had a little chat about it and, uh, and he was like, yes, okay. I just wanted to make sure Marcus that, uh, that you are on the right path. And we had a nice coffee lunch and, and, and such about it afterwards. And uh, it was a good, it was a good catch up with my dad at that point. Well, I'm skipping ahead, but now while we're just talking about your dad, now now that I've learned a little bit about him, I, I got to know when you when you become a game developer, and specifically when you ship Halo. I mean, Bungie had had hits before that, but when Halo becomes this just juggernaut of a thing, do, does your dad kind of grasp what happened? Does he sort of <laughs> does he start to see it on billboards or on TV, or you know, does it does the sort of uh, societal impact of, of Halo reach his, his ears and eyes at all? It sure does. And, um, and it was a boy that, that throughout the entire Halo series, as we continued working on the projects and as it got bigger and bigger and became more of a cultural phenomenon, um, the impact that they had uh, on it and, and, you know, people that they knew, even in their age group that would, would come to talk to them about Halo and what it meant to them and their children and, and how uh, so many people were affected by it positively one way or, the, or another. And um, that, I think that's the kind of thing they felt really uh, very happy about that. It turned out the way it did, you know, that's awesome. I love that. Uh, so were you, were you a gamer as a kid? You know, you're, you're, you're taking stuff apart. You're learning that way, but did games appeal to you as a kid? Yeah, they did. I loved games. Uh, but there weren't much, there weren't many available at that time. You know, when I was, um, I think my first introduction to games really was the, oh my God, was, is the Intellivision, right? Yeah. Pong and Frogger (laughs) and Pitfall and that kind of stuff on it. But uh, my first actual in, uh, experience with devving a game, uh, my my best friend, his name's Ted, back in the fourth and fifth grade, he had a TRS-80, um, and uh, he was really into programming at that time, you know, with a little tape deck on the side of the TRS-80, and he made, uh, and I sat and worked with him through this whole process, but it was mostly him who did it. Um, was just make uh, a Moonlander um, game where you know, I don't know if you ever seen the original Moonlander of uh, that was an arcade game, uh, but he basically simulated that as a f- fifth grader. He made a wow. Moonlander game and uh, where you just like use the arrow keys to like try to land your little Moonlander on a on a jagged uh, moon uh, surface. L- uh, Lunar Lander is the Atari version, I think, right? Lunar Lander. That's yeah. right. Yes. So um, so it was um, it was my first 
experience with the you know actual construction of a game and I was fascinated by that I had no idea you know how to program or do anything like that at that time that was way uh, way beyond my skill set but I could I could start uh, creating um, I could start creating some kind of visual design from it and so uh, as I mentioned earlier my dad as a minister we didn't make he didn't make any money at all so we were we we were not well off as a family at that time we we made ends meet just fine but uh so we could put food on the table uh, my dad my mom and dad could but we didn't have a lot of money to spend on anything like an atari system i always had to go over to my friend's house for that kind of thing yeah um but we did have at one point my uh uncle got us a commodore 64 and i think that was kind of the the real beginning of my total infusion of understanding what games meant to me as i played games like load runner and tron and um zork even uh summer games and that they had those kind of fun games that uh that you could get at that time um but it was also a time when i started fooling around with creating my own characters or just trying to like use a like um really basic um really really basic uh, programming to create little little teeny like avatar characters and that kind of stuff um it was fun um that was that that was a kind of time for me to experiment and and try to grow as much as i possibly could um and understanding how to uh, how to create something with with uh very little understanding um with with uh, you know the kind of things that you could do with a system like that so in in hindsight was was Ted's Lunar Lander clone your superhero origin story moment? <laughs> you know, it was kind of like the uh, it was kind of a moment where I I said, "Oh my god, that would actually be really fun to do." And I I was convinced that Ted was going to become a game developer um and that he didn't I would though? Be, you know, he he ends up <laughs> He ends up learning how to hack into systems and get really good at doing that kind of stuff, and he works for the NSA now. So that, well, is, that'll work. He, is, he had a completely different trajectory. Um, but uh, I was convinced that I would be the one sitting around looking at this guy going, oh, man, he's the famous game developer. He's the guy out there doing something really awesome, and I would always be jealous of, of, him, of him for doing that. And I thought, uh, that's only just a dream for me. Um, but as I continued moving along and playing other games, uh, like Myst and Journeyman Project and that kind of stuff is, uh, as you know, games kept evolving and getting a little bit better. Um, I was always taken by, uh, the storytelling within some of those games, like, and like Journeyman Project. And then I love the action, um, and the thrill of games like Marathon, and even the simulation of, I, I, I used to love um, flight sims. Yeah. Like uh, A-10 Attack, I think it was called, and Chuck Yeager's Air Combat and whatever, that kind of stuff back on some of those old, older games. I loved uh, World War II games like Hellcats Over the Pacific. Um, I, those were just fantastic. And then the, uh, my true first mod, I think it was a game called Spectre on the Mac, um, it was really one of the only multiplayer games you could play at that time. Right. And I remember I took all of the audio files and I made my own mouth sounds for them and uh, <laughs> created my own 
my own version of Spectre, basically. That uh, and at this time, this is uh, shortly after I had graduated from high school or from from college. Sorry, and um, I was working as a graphic designer in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and I was. We had fun sharing this game, this modded version of the game from stu- graphic design studio to studio, and we would play it together on Friday nights, and uh, and we would. It became this weird thing where all these people were playing this version of the game that I had <laughs> that I had created <laughs> mouthbot sounds for, and um, I don't know. It, it became this kind of my first infusion into um, actually modding games and seeing it as a real possibility for something that uh, I might want to pursue as a career, even though I had no idea how to get there. Yeah, but you so you went to Kent State. You majored in graphic design. Yeah. Uh, so what what was the original dream for, or, or at least what was the idea for what you wanted to be when you grew up? Were you were you still tracking towards game development, and this is how I want to get there, or were you thinking something else for a while? No, I when I went to Kent State, uh, the graphic design program there is one of the best in the area uh, f- uh, for like really true hardcore design. It was it was a fantastic. Uh, program to go through. And it's one of those programs that I still look at as being a foundation for almost everything I do, even to this day. So I'm real grateful for that whole process. But I could tell the entire time, Ryan, that I wasn't uh, passionate about graphic design. Um, I liked it. I was okay at it. It wasn't yeah. something that I was... Um, well, your heart wasn't uh, in it. If you're, if no, you're right, it, you're just it, okay at it. That's probably why, right? It wasn't. So... But but I uh, so I kept I kept you know pushing on and learning. My first graphic design jobs or so were just really really boring jobs, and uh, and it, they were okay. That it was um, I, I would uh, I was learning the ropes. Um, but I got into a really great studio, um, Karen Skunta Design Studio in in downtown Cleveland. I think she's still there. She was one of the best um, uh, graphic design studios in Cleveland. And um, it was one of these opportunities that I started breaking out from just doing typography. And it started exploring uh, 3D architecture and 3D product design uh, so we could really visualize how clients' products are going to look and how they're going to function. And it was all a great learning experience. I love doing this kind of stuff. Just, you know, building out, uh, like, I, I built the entire city of Cleveland at one point to, because uh, we were taking on a project to um, to build out one of the waterfront uh, projects and how we were going to handle signage and how yeah. we were going to handle traffic flow and all this other interesting stuff through it. And no one had ever done that before, like build the, the, the city of Cleveland. So after I built that, um, uh, I kept getting a bunch of calls from other from other architectural studios wanting to to get this model from me because it was a great baseline for them to use um, uh, for their own work. Um, but it was one of these kind of things that uh, the more I explored that, the more I realized uh, this is I think this is where my true passion lies is it's not just the construction of of three d content. It's the exploration of those worlds that I was building. It was like putting a camera into those worlds and animating that through 
and then also playing around with the animation of characters and, yeah. and the design of objects that live in it, and uh, that all became truly fascinating to me. So how? So now, how do you end up at Bungie? Because I think we're getting closer. Where does where does that leap come come into play? Um. So after uh, c- pursuing that career uh, with. Uh, in graphic design for now this is going on eight nine almost ten years wow um i had continued to learn the 3d side of things and and now i was picking up other projects like uh uh, with uh, multimedia projects with macromedia director and learning scripting and starting to get more in depth with building interactive experiences um uh at the same time i'm playing still playing games and marathon was one of those games that I just loved playing. Um, it was fantastic. I played it with my friends. We would uh, play it all the time together just to burn steam. And, uh, it was just one of those uh, fluke things where I looked at the back of the box. I didn't really know much about Bungie at all. And uh, I said, you know what, what the heck I'm, I'm working in this job right now that I enjoy, but, Games would really be amazing if I could somehow get my foot in there. I don't know how a guy working in Cleveland is going to get into games. I mean, <laughs> games is not a thing in Cleveland, Ohio. It's uh, And it uh, was this real leap for me to take at that time. Um, I just reached out to them via uh, – I actually wrote a letter since email wasn't a thing at that time, really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was, but not not much. So I wrote a letter to Alex Seropian, the president – co-founders, yeah. Yes, of, uh, of, of Bungie. Got a letter back uh, from him and then some correspondence about possibly, uh, you know, giving, having to talk with them. So I, I, I did. I flew out there. We, we interviewed – um, and, um, after I got back, uh, Alex made me an offer, but it was not a lot and it was, it wasn't enough to make me, um, uh, make a move at that time. And this is, uh, I had just, I see my wife and I had gotten married. This was back in 95. Um, my daughter was born, uh, 96 and, uh, I, I couldn't imagine moving uh, from Cleveland to Chicago, even though I love Chicago. That's where Bungie was located at that time. Yeah. I just was enamored with the idea of moving to the city, um, and uh, but I couldn't. I couldn't imagine making it work given what Alex was offering at that time. So, two more rounds over the course of about six months, there were other offers made, and finally one that stuck, and. Um, I said, okay, this is great. In between, I should I should mention, um, yeah. I was working with Alex. Um, actually, I was working directly with Jason on uh, the UI graphic design elements for Myth the Fallen Lords. So building out the entire UI for the game, it was one of those things I could do as a contractor, doing right. it remotely. Um, I went out and bought a Mac 8500. I was doing all kinds of stuff on that, just working out of uh, building it out of my house, um, doing whatever I could to come up with uh, cool designs for the game um, uh, remotely with the team. And it was um, it worked out pretty well. Um, like I had dial-up modem at the, at the time, like a 14-4 <laughs> modem. Yeah. Yes, and uh, 
So I would uh, I would email Jason chunks of the UI bit by bit over the modem, and uh, I think that was uh, that gained enough confidence to that final offer. Then, of right. course, that uh, that Alex made to to have me join the team full time. That's cool. And you that, you played a little you played a little hard to get, but also then got got you got that proverbial foot in the door, like you were talking about. I needed to, and uh, it, it was. I think it all it all played out nicely after that. Um, so Alex, uh, Alex, and Jason are fantastic, and I, I loved I loved the correspondence with them over the over the course of that time, and um, uh, you know, Bungie was real small. Um, I think uh, when I joined, there were only 10, 11 people or so. Wow. So it was a teeny little studio. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you about Jason in a second. But first, the key question of the interview, now that we're, we're you're into Chicago, mm-hmm. if take nothing else from this interview, if not, if not this. All right. Uh, Chicago, deep dish pizza or cracker thin? Which which way do you go? So we uh, we that was the first thing we do, we dove into was the deep dish pizza. Yes, uh, we made sure that we had plenty of that, and you know, uh, Bungie Studios was uh, located on um, South Halstead, uh, not so great an area town, but uh, we so we would um, we would always order the pizza in uh, because there weren't too many places to go uh, right around the office uh, location at that time. Uh, all right. So early days of Halo. Now you've joined up. Uh, you've you've helped on Myth. You've got this sci-fi strategy game. Uh, you, you're you've got this build. You've got this this sort of game started where you're tearing around in this warthog in this vehicle around this strategy world, and that starts to get super fun. Is how that's this is how I've heard the story over the years. So at, at uh, and you end up, of course, switching to first person. But at what point during the process of Halo's evolution do does Master Chief himself come about? Because that's you know you are credited as the creator of the Chief himself. Where where does he kind of fit in the timeline of strategy game Warthog? This is kind of cool. Let's bring the camera in first person shooter. So where where in there is uh, does the Chief come in? Um, yeah, when I, when I first, uh, moved out and joined, uh, Bungie and started working there on site, it was just Jason and myself working on, uh, the very origins of it. Like you mentioned, uh, yeah. the, the strategy game that was skinned with a sci-fi theme. Even at that time, there was, uh, there was a character that we called the super soldier and that super soldier was I it was in all honesty it was the very root of what became the master chief it was an armored character uh the very first iteration of that thing i think it was all of 400 polygons i'm not kidding <laughs> it was this teeny little thing um that would stand next to this tank and would uh, run alongside the tank and then we built this vehicle that uh, would ultimately become the warthog that that character could also jump into and drive around these early versions of the of that universe we were exploring you know some of the tech of course at that time but i was responsible for looking at the the how what this universe really was and um like how it was 
functioning, what it was made of, how it was going to be built. And it's uh, it's like some of those things that I hearken back to. It was like taking things apart yes. and looking what's inside and figuring out how we're going to exploit that and use that and turn that into something really cool. Um, the Master Chief ultimately was born from that really that very first uh, model as it is it evolved several times over the course of the construction of that early phase of the, of the game and we spent our time going back and forth on making sure that we were um, you know we were exploring territory that was interesting not only to us but something that we thought would work cohesively together and um, as you mentioned, like it went from that strategy game where we look from a from a camera down onto the field and we are commanding a large set of units, very much like Myth, because it was built on the Myth engine. And we uh, we continued making modifications to some of the um, the behavior of of items in the world, like the vehicles and how they navigated around the terrain and how they uh, physically responded to things to the point where. We got so excited about that um, and how that played out that we thought, why aren't we driving these things ourselves instead of just watching them drive themselves around on the ground? Uh, it would be a lot more interesting, wouldn't it? So we tried it. And um, and at that time, we had uh, a couple more people who joined the project, uh, which was which was fantastic. Charlie, who's now the president of Bungie, was just out of school, and and uh, he was um, he was working on the engineering side of things. He specifically was the one working on the physics for the Warthog. We all got excited about that, and we decided, all right, we're going to change this to this third person cam game. We're going to give this a shot, see how this action uh, kind of plays out, and. Through that time frame, of course, though the Master Chief um, continued to turn from something other than just this really, really simple block model to something that uh, started to look more like this armored, you know, like uh, this true super soldier that we continued to call him at that time. And um, it wasn't until I think we got closer to the Macworld um, demo uh, that... Um, he had existed in, in simultaneously with another version of the Master Chief that uh, one of our concept artists at that time, his name is Shikai Wang, who's fantastic, uh, great, talented person, um, still with Bungie now, um, had worked on some early concepts that were more anime-inspired uh, yeah. for the Master Chief. And we built that character, and it was much more, it was much more slender and... Um, uh, agile looking, I think at that time. Uh, and that's the, the character that we showcased in the, uh, in the Macworld demo. And then, um, it wasn't, it was shortly after that, that, um, I felt pretty strongly that the master chief and who the master chief really is needed to embody something that more physically connected with his character and um, as we started writing the character, the, the actual story for, for Halo, and as we started writing who the Master Chief is as that empty vessel that the character, you know, would, would really uh, take the reins with, that, um, that that slender character wasn't the right kind of feel for, um, for the Master Chief and that he needed to look like 
uh, a tank that could take on an entire army. And um, that's when um, I had gone back to some of my original designs for it and continued to iterate on the uh, the final designs for the Master Chief as we what we would see in um, Halo Combat Evolved. So I'm curious, were you involved in casting Steve Downs, local Chicago radio guy, uh, for the voice of Master Chief when that finally came around, or is that all Marty O'Donnell's joint? That was 100% Marty. Uh, when he went out uh, with his connections and finding folks that uh, he was, um, either he had worked with them before or just knew of these actors, and um, he had his connections with the uh, audio community and the actors within. Um, so, yeah, we were real happy to find um, Steve as the Master Chief. What a voice on that guy, huh? Yeah, boy, he sure does. It's still, to yes. this day, it still sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, um, it's great. So you, you started to talk about Jason Jones a little while ago, kind of mm-hmm. the... I, I think of him as kind of the the Wizard of Oz. Like the, He's the man behind the curtain. Like he's, 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 uh, these days, he's really quiet. Uh, he, he almost never gives interviews. I think, I mean, I got to interview him... 2014, uh, and I'm not sure he's given a big interview since then. So, what what is Jason like to work with? Like, uh, is is he? Because he's he comes he strikes me as kind of that a little bit of a John Carmack kind of a kind of a strange genius at work, uh, and I mean that in the nicest way. But what's sure. what is your sense of him from working together with him so closely uh, over the years? Yeah, Jason um, and I had a really great connection. When when I first started working with him, it was just the two of us. Um, it was effortless as far as um, just the the creative connection. His his um, he, he's he's one of the, like the original game dev kind of folks who can pretty much do anything you want I mean we as you know like young 20 year olds at that time and and not not really having any formal education for building video games by any means um, you had to learn everything on your own yeah and Jason was just really incredibly smart um, it st- still is of course um, he is um, yeah he's he is uh, easy to talk to he is uh, I consider him like a brother of mine now uh, with the way we've worked together over the years um, but he takes a lot on his shoulders he takes a lot of responsibility on his shoulders um, he is uh, he's an introvert when it comes to um, getting in front of a crowd he works best in a, in a small team and he loves that and because uh, he loves having his hands in the engine um, working on a game hands-on and um and it was it was the kind of passion that i shared with him so now halo's blowing up the game ships of course the microsoft acquisition i guess is is your wife like are you on board with moving out to seattle when microsoft i mean obviously you you i'm sure you talk about it as as a company you're a small company hey microsoft wants to buy us it it goes ahead but is that is that uh nerve-wracking for you like packing your life up and heading to seattle yeah, when we moved from Cleveland to Chicago, we pretty much were we were sure that we would never move further west than that uh, because <laughs> we wanted to be closer to our family, you know, our parents and my brothers, sisters, everybody was still back in Ohio. 
Um, as we moved, uh, as we entertained the move from Chicago to Seattle, that was exciting uh, for everybody, but it was also really uh, concerning for us, uh, a lot of us. Um, and at that time, I think we had 40, 45 people or so at Bungie. So it was a considerable crew to consider m moving from one city to another. Um, and uh, yeah, it was very worrisome for my wife. I had two children at this time, and um, yeah, do we really want to move that much further away from family? So we wanted to consider it. Um, Microsoft was fantastic, actually, about uh, uh, flying us out, having us uh, go through some introductions for the area, and acclimate us to the to the area and really provide a ton of great resources for Bungie as a studio when it comes to settling in, trying to find some place to live, and, uh, and make that transition as smooth as possible. So we did, and we thought, okay, we'll give this a shot. It might be a year or two, we'll, we'll see. You know, like Once we get done with Halo, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll like, okay, we'll get that out the door and then we'll maybe move, move back to Ohio. That was the plan. Um, but <laughs> then, uh, I'm curious, humor me this, what time of year was it that they were flying you out and, and sort of showing you around and trying to, to sweeten the, the situation for you? Yeah, we, we did kind of luck out because it was, uh, I think it was, it was either late spring or summer. So it, See, was, that's, it, was, yeah, it was the beautiful time of the year to be out here. So I it have, was absolutely a, a huge factor. In I us. have heard that Microsoft does a lot of their recruiting like <laughs> in the summertime when it's nice yes. to try and like, see, look how beautiful it is. There's no rain. What are you talking yes, about? During our three-month window <laughs> of, of beautiful weather. Uh, and it is one of the most beautiful places in the country to live for those three months, yes. Um, but um, we loved it out here. Um, it was it was the kind of thing we fell in love with this area when we moved out uh, when we moved out in um, two thousand, and um, uh, we thought while we would probably move back, it did not take long before our roots just kind of planted here, and we were just enamored by. Not only the beauty of the area, um, uh, but all of the opportunities that we had here as a, as a game studio, knowing that this probably would be a long term future for us. Well, and go figure that like nowadays, if if it were if it were now, and you were uh, at Mike, at Bungie now, and Microsoft was buying you, they probably would leave you would have left you in Chicago and not forced you to transplant out to the mothership. That is definitely true um that is definitely true and you know it would have been interesting to see how that would have played out but um you know we we built the studio um as best we could when we first made that transition from chicago to seattle they planted us in um a temp building in redmond not not too far from the main campus yeah and it was Actually, the first time when we, we were working together as a studio, they put us initially right in these... Uh, we were used to working in a completely open office um, situation, which was not a thing at Microsoft at all. Right. Like, it at didn't cubicles, exist. Yeah. yeah, so they put us in eight-foot-high cubicles, um, so we couldn't see each other um, in this in this 
open room, but uh, because we couldn't actually make eye contact with one another, we were isolated within each one of these cubicles. We almost fell apart as a, as a team. We had just made this pretty traumatic transition from Chicago out here to the Seattle area. Now we were stuck in these cubicles. We were working on trying to really transition everything we had done with Halo, which was mostly foundational work. We didn't even have our first level put together for the game yet. Um, and we were frantically trying to figure out how we were going to turn this game into an Xbox launch game. And that was a, an incredibly difficult transition for us to make. Not only that, but then we were in this different working condition that uh, we weren't used to. And it really broke down our communication um, to where we... Uh, we, we begged and pleaded with, with, uh, with Microsoft execs. We we're like, we really do need to figure out a different working situation here for our studio. So um, we found some uh, additional space um, uh, not too far away, and they blew out the room for us. It was this big open studio, and it turned out to work just fine for us then in that case. So Halo comes out. And it just blows up. It's obvious. It's the killer app. It's 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 it is the thing that gives the the Xbox project life. Was there a moment where the the sort of did the reality of its success hit you in any sort of thunderous way at any specific moment, or was it just sort of this gradual thing you you kind of that became normal for you? You know, every game that we've ever shipped, um, that I've ever personally shipped, it's the kind of thing where you sit on pins and needles for the you know, those initial launch moments because you have no idea what to really expect as far as how it's going to be accepted uh, by the community um, and what kind of legs it's going to have beyond that. The reviews started coming in. The, uh, the community started chiming in with their feedback on it. And the more positive kind of comments we started getting back, the more we got, we thought, oh, well, maybe we actually really did do something kind of interesting here that um, that uh, is connecting with the, with the community the, beyond just our own studio. Because we built the game initially um, to be something that would be fun for us to play. We always enjoy uh, making games. Uh, we always wanted to make games that would be games that we'd love to play as well, of course. Um, and when you have that kind of passion for your own game that you're that you're building, of course, that translates through into something that we hope would uh, reach a larger audience. But we didn't realize at all just how special that connection would be or how widespread it would be. We had no idea. And um, it took several months beyond the launch of Halo 1 to really recognize the fact that it was... Um, it was going to be something uh, um, that was much bigger than what we had initially envisioned. Yeah. And um, uh, I, that really fueled us. That, that got the team very, very excited about um, laying down what became uh, a franchise. Can you all go in at that point, at some point, and just demand huge raises from Microsoft because you've just <laughs> shipped this incredible thing? No. As a matter no. of fact, we... we uh, we were just as normal employees um, and not receiving, of course, there were no royalties or anything at that time. Um, but we wanted to uh, try 
to see what we could gain on that front, um, to see if we could get some kind of reward for the hard work that we put into it. And there was a lot of hard work that went into it. So um, we ultimately... Um, we got what we called the 2% milk plan. Uh, it was 2%, and that was um, what we were able to agree on with Microsoft. It came from um, uh, many, many months of arduous negotiation with the execs. It was something that was, oh, that, gosh, that was really hard at that time because, of course, no internal team would receive royalties for anything they did. Right. Um, and um, to to have one team go rogue and do this kind of uh, negotiated agreement with them was really um, atypical. Um, so I was happy that we were able to do that. Um, uh, of course, it's the kind of thing that as Halo continued to blow up and become this bigger, bigger franchise over the course of the years that we always wished we could have negotiated for more. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm no billionaire as a result of, uh, of the success of Halo. Um, um, it, it, it was nice to us over the course of the years. And, and really, so, the, really and so the first seed was planted for what would become Bungie's uh, eventual separation from Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, that, that might have been the first thing uh, for sure. Um, we, we realized that as a studio, uh, we had a culture internally that we, that we relished and that we wanted to uh, protect and maintain. And uh, as the leadership... As I, I as we continued growing as a studio, my role as a um, as a uh, leader within the studio, and then ultimately part of the uh, the core team that would negotiate the buying back of Bungie um, was um, it was something that I was really excited to be part of. Um, Throughout so, Bungie's history, I know I've, I'm starting to run out of time with you. We got to, we still got to get to disintegration, your new thing. But first, real quick, you got to humor me because I every every former Bungieite, uh, not sure if that's how you refer to yourselves, Bungieites, <laughs> but <laughs> every every former Bungie person that I've talked to, I, I always have to ask this question, mm-hmm. and you would have been ke- very deeply involved in this. What was the ending of Halo Two supposed to be? What was that last bit supposed to be that, that didn't end up happening? Oh, man. This is the kind of thing that we, as we ran out of time, and we, because we set our goals so lofty with Halo 2. Halo 2 is a really challenging project for us. Um, I think that was probably the most challenging uh, of all of the series um, because it was where we had come off the success of Halo uh, Combat Evolved. Halo 2 was something that um, we wanted to not only uh, one-up what we had done with Halo, um, the first Halo installment, but um, build a much bigger story, uh, a much uh, bigger universe. And we bit off way more than we could chew. And um, and we knew that uh, it was going to be a challenge for us. And the leadership at that time, we were also having a hard time trying to figure out how the studio matures and becomes a much more uh, efficient and uh, responsible team and studio. Um, something that uh, we weren't super successful with at, uh, at that time in Bungie's history. But um, And it led to a lot of... Uh, uh, difficulty as we went through that project in wrapping it up and trying to end it cleanly. Um, so yeah, uh, how it ends 
Ryan, you know, I got to be honest with you. It's there's like there were so many weird endings to uh, to it that um, um, uh, Joe uh, Staten and Jason were uh, were two of the uh, key people working on the story at that time. Yeah. And just, you know, like hold up in a room almost all the time, like really focusing on trying to wrap it up that uh, the mystery still lives within. Oh, so now you're going to make me. You're, you're, all right, we're passing the buck to Jason. Now I got to go talk to him again or Joe. Now we got to right, see how it is. We got to get Jason back in here. Uh, no, it's all good. So, all right. Well, we we're, we're on our way to disintegration here. But first, the the, the next and arguably biggest key moment is Halo Reach because you become a project director for the first time. You lead Reach. This is a game that is. Uh, many Halo fans' favorite Halo game. The Reach is a is a beloved title uh, in the in the Halo universe. What what is sort of your uh, or I guess I'll start with what did Halo Reach teach you about leading a team rather than uh, you know you'd stepped up from from art director. So fortunately, it wasn't um, uh, uh, a like a binary switch for me to go from. The from Halo Three as art director on Halo Three, part of the the interesting transition for me personally was, um, and this goes back to yeah, this goes back to some of the earliest things we talked about uh, with regards to l- always having this passion for understanding the underpinnings of how things work, how things function. Um, I was um, I always love understanding and um, like delving into what every discipline is doing, what uh, every discipline can do to work together more efficiently. And as an art director, I, that was one of my roles as an, in the studio, but also as a leader within the studio, as a, uh, someone who would help, you know, bridge the gaps between content and design and engineering it was always a critical part of what i did every day uh, throughout the throughout the uh, game's development so it was a natural progression when we went from halo 3 and started working on halo reach um as part of the studio had gone off to start working on odst and then a very small portion had already started incubating what was what would ultimately become destiny with jason so, um, moving on to to Halo Reach, we had uh, we had a great foundation uh, that we had um, you know uh, with Halo um, Three behind us, and we had this found this fantastic engine to work with. But we wanted to really try to try to encapsulate all of the wonderful things we had done with the Halo universe over the course of the years, and pull all those things that we were most passionate about together into one final. Uh, uh, one final game that uh, that would be, you know, our our thank you basically to yeah. the community for the for the uh, for you know supporting us and following us through this entire uh, journey that we had been on together with Halo. Uh, I love the the that final message that pops up at the end of the game there, which which is a it is a literal thank you to the to the fans of Halo. I thought that was a that was a really nice touch. Yeah, because it was bittersweet for us, Ryan, as we as we wrapped up Halo. We had worked on it for so many years, and um, uh, while we were very eager to move on to do something else, um, we we knew that um, all of our success 
all of our stories that we had together had come from the Halo franchise and that, that Halo meant a lot, not just to our community, but to all of us as developers and who we had become as individuals. So uh, you started, you, you, you moved over to my understanding, you started on uh, doing some Destiny stuff for a while, but ultimately uh, you'd come to Depart Bungie and, and if I have this correctly, the, it, it was... Was it was it not on uh, quite the friendliest of terms? Oh, it wasn't too bad. Um, I when I when I left Bungie initially, um, I left Bungie twice. Um, so the first time, I had decided uh, that uh, we had moved on to the Destiny project. It was working fine. I you know I I enjoyed Destiny. It yeah. had already had a, a team of leadership with Jason and a whole bunch of people already in place. And so is, and then I had my team of leadership as well as uh, all of the individuals on the team. We had about 250 to- uh, people tops at that time on Halo Reach. Wow. Um, so moving that entire team over and integrating them with the Destiny project was super challenging. And we had also purchased ourselves back as a studio. We had moved to a new location. And uh, so we had a nice big new studio to move into. So that was kind of exciting and fun. But I, uh, we were, I was kind of feeling out you know, how we were going to make this work together. As um, as we worked on Destiny um, in this new form with this new team, we didn't have an engine yet. Uh, it was wasn't really quite production ready at that time. So there was a lot of exploration of what we were going to do next. And um, you know, I spent about eight or nine months working on Destiny before I realized that um, I think one of the best options for me was to leave and start my own studio, or or at least start thinking about something on that front. Uh, about what I wanted to do next. Um, I did um, leave amicably. Um, it wasn't all that bad at all. Um, there was some there was some um, back and forth, of course, with the leadership on it. Uh, they weren't happy about it. Um, but but um, I spent about six months or so on my own trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Uh, Bungie called me back, said, hey, you know, would you be interested in actually coming back and starting another project? I said, well, that sounds like a great opportunity. Um, I, I would actually like to entertain that because, you know, I'm still good friends with, um, with the, the Bungie leadership and uh, many of the people there. Um, so I, did, I took up the opportunity and started working on a complete, completely different um, game prototype with a very, very small team in the basement of Bungie. We called ourselves the troglodytes living down in the basement <laughs> because we had no lights, no windows, or uh, no no natural light down there. And um, But it was fun. I mean, we were actually able to pull together a, a playable prototype within about six months and um, pitch the idea to the to leadership within the studio. And that all went great. Um, um, but but Destiny itself was struggling at that time uh, to stay on track. And they needed laser-like focus from everybody in the entire studio. And our team and our little project was a bit of a distraction. Sure. And it also didn't have a clear ramp uh, to production that would be feasible with the uh, existing leadership and the existing staff. So um, I decided at that point that uh, the the message was pretty clear that we probably wouldn't be able to get the support we needed 
and it probably wasn't the right uh, place to be building um, a game. So I left one last time and um, said my final goodbyes to to my good old friends at Bungie and um, went out on my own 100%. So Wow, it's, it's, it's almost a strange reverse parallel to when you first got hired on. You were, you were uh, repeatedly hitting them up to try and get hired in the beginning, and then at the end, they were repeatedly trying to... To keep you a little bit, yeah, it's kind of strange when you put it that way. I never even thought about it, <laughs> thought about it like that. But um, yeah, it's it it was. I think it was a good way to end uh, my uh, my relationship with Bungie. And um, as I said before, I'm I'm good friends with them still. We uh, a group of us still go hiking um, at least once a year uh, to uh, just hang out with one another and um, and stay stay connected in that way. I'm glad to hear that. That makes me happy. All right. So I've got about 15 minutes left with you. We've got to talk right. some disintegration here because yeah. you're you're not here for your health. You're not here to take a walk <laughs> down memory lane. You've got a game to promote. That game is disintegration. And uh, it is, to me, it's I haven't, uh, I haven't actually had the chance to play it yet myself, but I've seen it a number of times in action. We've covered it extensively on IGN. I'm very intrigued by this game. It is a first-person shooter. It's got these heavy strategy elements. Uh, I'm curious what inspired it because uh, I couldn't help but think a little bit about uh, two games I really like, uh, Full Spectrum Warrior. I don't know if you ever played that game back in the I day. I never from, played it, but I know it exactly what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, and, and, and Brothers in Arms, a little bit of that mm-hmm. too. So I'm sort of curious about the inspiration for Disintegration. Not that, it, I, I, not that I uh, wanted to stay too close to my roots with Bungie, but... Um, Myth the Fallen Lords was one of those games that I think mo- I most connected with, especially as um, I had a hand in helping build it initially, and then it became a game that I that I stayed connected with as I after we moved from Cleveland and uh, into the Chicago zone, I could stay connected with my friends that way. We played it all the time um, um, over uh, online together, and um, the. The thing, the most visceral aspect of the game that I think I was most, I was, uh, I was really interested in connecting with, was that uh, real-time tactical element, uh, and and how that played out on the battlefield in a way that was that was really tactile and was very visceral and very exciting to watch play out. Um, so that was the kind of thing that, uh, as I started exploring game ideas. Um, which were numerous at that time when I first started um, exploring what we wanted to do uh, with our first game here at V1, that um, this hearkening back to Myth the Fallen Lords and building something that was uh, almost a spiritual successor to that um, the, was the initial underpinning of what where we started um, with, a, with an actual playable prototype where it was sci-fi, it was based in the universe of disintegration, but right. it was something that uh, was a very different beast at that time. And it's so weird how it paralleled Halo going from the RTS to uh, to first-person shooter, and it was not intentional by any means, <laughs> but it was something that was this natural progression of how we explored the idea initially and then led to something that we felt was much, much more exciting regarding um, putting the player in the position of controlling that camera in the sky in a way that they are an active participant in combat. And then from there, things just exploded um, to the point where we got 
so excited about what we were building because we understood that there wasn't really anything else like it out there. So uh, I'm curious. It's the gaming industry has changed so much just in the last five years, let alone ten. How do you get visibility on a on a unique new idea like this? Because I'm not trying to butter you up by saying like this is a different kind of this is not your average first person shooter. It is for better or for worse. It is very different, and that's that's great in and of itself. But how how do you get visibility and try to sort of break through that noise now uh, where where there's ten thousand games releasing every single week? Right. Uh, part of that is. Well, part of it is we rely on the fact that we have a, a legacy in building games that allows us to to at least talk to the people we feel like we want to talk to um, yeah. and can talk to to talk to you know discuss what this game is about. That's of course one part of it um, that we have to acknowledge. the The other big part of it, Ryan, that. Um, I really try to focus on as much as I possibly can is making sure that we would we built something that uh, is as polished as possible. As an art director coming from that art director background, as a um, as a, uh, someone who's very interested in the mechanical underpinnings of how things actually function and work together, not only just with the game, but then how the team as itself pulls all of those ideas together and brings them uh, into concert with one another. Uh, there are so many great game ideas out there that just aren't executed to the point where they get into that, uh, that quality level that is actually sh- uh, something that can be showcased. That's the kind of thing that um, I really like to focus on, uh, making sure that we, that, that, you know, that last 10% is something that becomes um, really special as a result um, because it's really hard to get through that last part of understanding how all of those final pieces and parts can work together and uh, and how you can make it not only uh, play great, look great, uh, but feel great as a as a as a title. Um, the, I feel uh, like yeah, the, the that polish. I mean, you see it. You can look around the industry. It's it must be really difficult because there aren't a there are plenty of high-profile games that that don't have that polish when they first get into gamers' hands, so it's got to be a big challenge. So it is, and then it is also uh, a huge challenge for us as a brand-new indie studio with only 30 people in it, and we have this one opportunity to make uh, to you know like to make a mark one way or the other of of. You know, like saying, "Hey, here's what we really are excited about. Here's what we're we're hoping that the community at large is also excited about uh, joining us um, as we as we debut this title soon, and uh, as we get excited to showcase more about it." So, what what is the what's the vision for V1 Interactive? Do you do you want to grow it over time and become as big a studio as Bungie was during your your heyday there, or do you in, uh, intentionally want to stay smaller and leaner? Kind of a how do you how do you see yourself and your team uh, evolving and and growing together over the over the coming years? I I believe we will want to grow just a little bit, Ryan. I don't want us to ever become a large studio. Um, while I enjoyed building. Uh, and being part of Bungie as it grew from just 10 people 
to now it's close to 700 people. That that kind of uh, team size is not something that um, I'm terribly interested in pursuing anymore because I realize how as a small team, as a uh, close-knit family of developers, we can be so much more efficient. We're so much more hands-on. Um, we all wear lots of different hats at the studio because we have to out of necessity. But that's part of what makes gaming so much more interesting. Um, uh, I'm one of the... I don't know how many uh, game dev leaders of, of studios actually are actually also working as an individual contributor on the games. Um, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, got my blinders on when it comes to that kind of thing, talking to other uh, developers of other studios. But I am, I'm one of those individuals uh, who also likes building games. Um, I, I like getting my, my fingers greasy in the engine every day, along with the rest of the team as we build this game together. So it's a really important to me that we maintain that kind of connection uh, as a team where we can, um, where we have deep understanding of what the, what the game mechanics are, how they work together. And everybody is a, uh, is directly connected to and invested in what we're building then as a, as a result. So before I let you go, I'm curious, you've, you've had a hell of a career thus far and you've got plenty left to go and you've seen a lot, done a lot, accomplished a lot. What, this is like a cheesy, stupid question, but I, I think it's, it could be really your answer could be really enlightening for people whether they're looking to get into the industry or what have you. I, I'm curious mm-hmm. what piece of advice you would give yourself from if you could go back to the beginning of your career and talk to yourself now. Is there any sort of wisdom or advice you would impart upon yourself? Oh wow, yeah. Um, it, you know, having gone back and if I if I were to look back every every five ten or so years I look at my uh, I look back at what I used to do and how I used to behave and how I had uh, uh, tackled things at that time I think just having a, a leveler head and just being calmer about about how to go about uh, dealing with problems uh, that are difficult to solve and having um, you know just having a little bit more um, Patience um, was one of those things that um, I wish I would have been able to tell my younger self um, because at that time we were all so young and we were all so inexperienced and uh, incapable of understanding how to challenge to, to tackle the challenges in front of us. Um, so we were all figuring it out together. Um, it it ultimate it, it led to issues that could have easily been solved had we just had a little bit more patience and uh, and. Um, Stepping away from the problem for a moment, absorbing what's there, and then just calmly going back to tackling that challenge. I mean, that's how I do it now, and that's how I feel like uh, we can we can maintain a steady course without uh, too much disruption as a result. Well, there it is. Uh, all right, Marcus, when do we have a specific date for disintegration? Do we have a window? When can we play this video game from you and your new studio? The date right now is still 2020 this year. Uh, more details on that are coming up pretty damn soon. Fair enough. Uh, Marcus Leto, the founder of V1 Interactive, uh, one of the leads on disintegration, a new, very unique 
first-person shooter sort of strategy hybrid. You got to give it a try. Videos don't even, and I say that as a guy who puts videos on a website, so I shouldn't say this, but <laughs> videos, I feel like, don't do this game justice. You got to play it for yourself, uh, as as uh, my colleague Brandon Tyrell has been telling me repeatedly. Said, you get, you got to really play it to get it. So, uh, Marcus, best of luck on thank the you. stretch run to you and your team, uh, and thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate you having me here today. For more from the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry, look for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered every month.